How many guys uh, studied just make me do all the heavy lifting? So um, I haven't heard how the lady, I heard there was a ton of, and uh, there was pulpit. They didn't have to to the right hand or the left, so that was nice. The joke is that when Greg, he doesn't have to stand on a step stool, so I hope he's watching right now. <laughs> all right, well, uh, as you know, we're not currently in Matthew 9. Jesus set us off on this course to talk about uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We've gotten the, the bad stuff out of the way. Now we're talking about marriage, and we're also, it's time to get ready for the adults uh, discipleship hour, where we're going to have a number of different couples kind of provide their experience. They've tried to fill the various regard to marriage. So what I'm doing, I'm kind of running through the fundamental, per se, some application. Yeah. So uh, we're, today we're going to exploring dominion and the roles in marriage. Now this, of course, is a controversial subject, but it shouldn't be for those who call Jesus. Now, the, the, the whole, the whole controversy, I don't care about it, but it does bother me. Deeply Nothing in God's will be controversial. And the reason that it is, I said last week, we're all, whether we like to or not, we're a product of our culture. And our culture has infected us and uh, poisoned us. We come to the scripture, the sin nature, amen? So we must return to the scripture. We must recalibrate. We must get our senses. So that's what today, just going to look at it as if it wasn't controversial, it was a matter of instruction. So let me uh, review what we did last week, kind of inter- in- introduce today. We'll pray together, get rolling. I don't know how much time I'm going to try not to impose with hours. I'm going to go fast and carefully on live stream. All right. So last week we looked at God's design for marriage and how his design communicates will from the time of creation for the women in the world and before there was sin in us, God created everything and us in a very particular way so that things would function according to design, his plan. And what God did in the beginning, all time, he stated in the beginning, he stated, so nothing he created us male and female in order to together in a one flesh relationship called the covenant marriage. So God created us to be married, as it says. Now again, we'll explore exceptional marriage. We'll go back to this. Not we then shifted our attention to purpose for marriage. The first being designed the purpose of displaying God's character to one another in the marriage. It's for the glory of God. It's for our spouse's sake. And second, which is related to the we were designed spell. Our spouse is lonely. The secondary purpose for marriage is simply to be in relation. Just as God is in relationship, he has been so for Once we established the purpose for marriage, we looked at the responsibilities of marriage briefly. Uh, what's the first one? Calvary Chapel does it well. We have babies, okay? We're a baby-making, and uh, we're committed to our first response. The second one, what's on this? So we discussed the issue of procreation. God's people should be committed to having children, okay? But... We only introduced the second. As I said last week, dominion, the issue of dominion, is perhaps one of the most forgotten or avoided or misunderstood in the context of marriage, right there in the text, beginning. And when we get to Genesis chapter 2, it takes center stage. And then what we see in the rest of Scripture, it's played out. Now, of course, affected by sin, God's objective still being played out. Now, I'm sure that some of you are exposed to some forms of theology. There, there are theology. They advance the idea that the church's job is to take over the world, uh, you know, to rule over the name, the government down. Some versions of this are militant. Okay, Francis Schaeffer, a militant dominion theologian. He wanted to use military force to coerce schools to creation. I don't want to be a part of that. Just homeschool to solve that problem. <laughs> Other forms are my position. They're all unbiblical, all of them. Now, there are three biblical spheres of de- First came the family. Then came civil government, and last came God has ordained rulers for all three of them. 
but our interest this morning is how dominion applies to marriage. So let's, this morning is a little more. Genesis chapter 1, if you've, if you've read all that, I'm assuming that you are all Bible readers. Amen? Okay, Genesis chapter 1 is an overview of creation, okay, from, from day 1 to day 6, which, which culminates in the pinnacle of God's creation, which was the creation of man's image. Chapter 2, on the other hand, begins with the seventh day, commemorating the completion of God's perfect work from which he stopped creating and fashioning things. So just real quick, in Genesis 1.1, God created time, space, and matter, energy, from nothing. He didn't use existing materials to create the universe. He brought everything into existence out of nothing. It was ex nihilo, out from nothing. After Genesis 1.1, God began to fashion things from what he had created, including man. And once the woman was created... As we talked about, she was joined to the man. God's world was complete. Everything was created and fashioned according to his perfect design, to which he said it was very good. Then we get to Genesis 2, verse 3. It says, Then God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which he had created, that is from nothing, and then made what he had fashioned from what he had created. But of course, God didn't stop working on the seventh day. He only stopped creating and fashioning things. The seventh day commemorated the completion of that work. Jesus said, my dad and I, we've never stopped working. Okay, John 5, 17. Um, Our our world, you understand, our universe is not self-sustaining. Okay, God has to keep it running, keep it in place, keep it functioning. Colossians 1, 17, Hebrews 1, 3. So after that, the rest of chapter 2 looks back to the sixth day of creation, the creation of man, and then it it fills us in on all the details that happened that day, and all of the details have to do with dominion. That's where we're at. So why don't you please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Genesis 2, verse 7 to 25. Genesis 2. There's no way I'm getting through our study this morning. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of him. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. For time's sake, skip to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may, be, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quoted the King James in there. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for Genesis, as you created at a time when there was no sin. Everything was exactly as you wanted it, and everything was to continue as you wanted it. 
but then we brought chaos into our world. But Lord, by your grace, we can, we can take the chaos and we can bring order to it. And you've called us to do that in marriage. And I pray, Lord, that day by day you teach us more how to accomplish that. Grant us grace to do it. Lord, teach us this morning from your word and um, help us to walk accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. So in the narrative of Genesis 2, God created the man before the woman. You saw that in the text. And it's actually absolutely essential to God's design for our theology of dominion. Adam was formed first, verse 7. That's the thing that Paul actually points out in a a theological treatise in 1 Corinthians 11, and then instruction for the church in 1 Timothy 2 to establish God's will as it's communicated by design and order. Also in verse 8 and 15, it says that God planted a garden and put Adam there, that is the Garden of Eden. Why did he do that? It says to tend and to keep it. So what's happening? A garden, man in it, tend it, keep it. Well, Genesis 126 and 128 says that God created man to have dominion over the earth and the animals. So in Genesis 1.15, God puts Adam in the place, the location of his dominion, the Garden of Eden, which was to be his home. So Adam, as one man, he's not responsible for having dominion over the whole earth. That would be a lot of dominion for one guy, wouldn't it? That responsibility is given to mankind, but God has designed, or I'm sorry, assigned a place of dominion for every man, and the primary place of his dominion is his home, okay? And he was given this domain with the responsibility of tending, of keeping, okay? All of this was done. It was all committed to Adam before God created the woman. And then what follows, as Adam is there in his dominion to tend and keep it, God then provides some instruction, okay? He commanded Adam regarding the things that he should eat and the things that he should not eat. He could eat from the tree of life, but he was forbidden to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, or as as the Hebrew suggests, in dying, he would eventually die. Uh, My kids always say, well, dad, he ate the fruit and he was still alive. He began to die. And as God says in the curse, you're going to return to the dirt from which I brought you because of sin. And then in verse 19 through 20, we have some basic taxonomy. Okay, in the place of Adam's domain were these animals, which he was to exercise dominion over. And the initial act of dominion was to name them. Okay, they're in his domain. He's responsible for naming them. And then it was in the process of naming the animals that it became obvious that Adam was alone and that there was not a a helper comparable to him. That is, there was none like Adam to help him. Well, to help him with what exactly? To exercise dominion. Yeah. In verse 18, God points out that Adam was by himself. He was alone. It wasn't good. He had no one comparable to help, to assist, to tending, to keeping the place of dominion and the animals within it. So then in verse 21, God caused Adam to, you know, to sleep deeply. He knocked him out, okay? Um, as Ray Comfort says, and Scripture never says he came out of it. Some men, perhaps they didn't. Our text, his translations say that he took a rib. The, the, the Hebrew says he took from his side, probably some DNA, okay? Formed the woman from it, and he brought her to the man. She was taken from him, 
she was brought to him in the place of his dominion. And then it says that the man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's a lot of theology there that is then worked out through the rest of the scriptures. And if you've listened to me do a wedding, I I put it this way, the husband, the man is to come out from under the authority, provision, and protection of his parents. He's to come out from under their domain. And then he's to establish a new one. The woman comes out from under the provision, protection, and authority of her parents. She comes out from under their domain, and she comes under the headship of her husband, into his domain. Okay? It's very important in our understanding of marriage. God's intention was, as humanity increased in population, that man would eventually have dominion of the whole earth and everything in it. But of course, in the story of man, we didn't make it very far, did we? We fell into sin in chapter 3, which has made exercising dominion a great challenge, which we'll examine later. For now, in Genesis 3, we see that Adam has not yet finished naming everything in his dominion. What hasn't been named? The woman. In verse 20, Adam gives his wife the name Eve. So what does all this mean? I've taken you through all of this to demonstrate that from the beginning, God has given Adam headship of his domain, and he gave Adam his wife to help him with that dominion. Man was given dominion, that is, authority over all of creation. And every man has been given headship over his domain, which includes the place of his dominion, his home, and everything in it, including the person of his dominion, which is his wife. And then eventually, the persons of his domain, which are his children. You follow? Now allow me to make this point more clearly from the text of Scripture. And then what we'll do is we'll, we'll examine the, what we'll call the nature of man's dominion as God intended. Okay? We'll call it the virtues of his headship. Okay? Now I quickly jotted down 22 examples in about five minutes of how God has given man headship over his domain. I'm going to provide 16 just to be expedient. Okay? I'll go through them quickly. So put your seatbelt on and pay attention, okay? Uh, So just be patient as I further establish male dominion, which our culture loves, and then I'll demonstrate the nature, okay, as God intended. Number one, Adam was formed first, okay? God formed Adam first to be the head, to have authority over his domain, which includes his wife. That is why God does not allow a woman to take an authoritative role of teaching over a man, okay? That's why... He does not allow women to be pastors and elders. Another controversial thing, sadly, in the church itself. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence for or because Adam was formed first, then Eve. God's order, okay, it demonstrates his will, his design. Number two and three together, Adam was given his place of dominion with his responsibilities before the woman was formed, okay? Not only was Adam stationed, in the place of his dominion, his responsibilities to tend and keep it was stated by God all before woman was present. He was given dominion. Number four, God had Adam name the animals within his dominion. He did not have the woman name them. Number five, the man was created to come along, I'm sorry, the woman was created to come alongside the man to help advance his dominion. The man was not created to help advance her dominion. God made Adam a helper. To strengthen this point, 1 Corinthians 11, which describes the structure and authority in the home, it says this, 
nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Now, all that will break down in a little bit, so you know, please don't leave yet. Number six, the woman came from the man. The man didn't come from the woman. Okay? It's reinforced also in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. You notice, stated in the beginning, it's perpetuated in the New Testament. Nothing has changed. Number seven, the woman was brought to the man. The man wasn't brought to the woman. Number eight, the focus remains on man as head, for he is the one in the text who leaves father and mother, as we looked at. The woman must also leave her father and mother, but it's the man who leaves and establishes a new domain. The woman does not. She joins his dominion. Number nine, in Genesis 3, after Adam ate the fruit, the couple hid themselves among the trees of the garden because they were afraid, they were ashamed. And when God called out, who did he call out to? The man. That's right. He didn't call out to Eve. God called out to the head, the one who was responsible for everything that happened in his domain. Adam, where are you? We got business. Number 10, when God pronounced the curse upon mankind and their dominion, he confronted Adam first, and then he dealt the curse to the Adam last. Number 11, in spite of Adam's failure by which he brought sin into the world, Adam's headship was not removed. Okay? It's demonstrated in Genesis 3.16. We're going to come back to this verse. Okay? So headship was not handed over to the woman. The man was to continue ruling as God intended. Number 12, Adam was rebuked for heeding the voice of his wife. Okay? As head, Adam should not have received the fruit from his wife and eaten it. He should have declined. He should have taken it up with God and said, look what's happened. Now what? Now what do I do? But instead he ate. Number 12, the place of Adam's dominion is said to be cursed because of Adam's sin, not because of her sin. Eve cursed herself. The text above says to Adam, cursed is the ground for your sake. The earth, which was to be a sweet blessing to him, was now cursed by sin and would require great toil to bring food from it. Verse 13, or number 13 rather, Adam named Eve. He was given a responsibility to name everything in his domain, and it even included his wife Eve. Number 14, male headship is by God's design, and as we said, by his design he communicated his will. In 1 Corinthians eleven three, 3 it says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So the structure of authority in God's creation is God, Christ, man, and woman. It's made clear in other passages like Ephesians 5.22 and verse 24, Colossians 3.18, 1 Timothy 2.11 through 12, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Nothing of God's will has changed since creation. We just continue to argue with him. Number 15, and this is becoming more theological in nature, it weighs heavily into this whole subject. The first person to sin in this world was who? It was Eve. But sin did not come into this world and corrupt it because of the woman's sin. Why not? She doesn't have dominion. Paul says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. That is, they all sinned in Adam as our head, the head of all of creation. Okay. Adam, the man, the head of creation, the one to whom dominion was given, was responsible 
for bringing sin into the world, not the woman. The text is clear. By one man, sin entered the world and death by sin. He is to blame. You see, in the garden, Adam represented all of mankind. So all of us, through his actions, we would either stand or fall. We would succeed or we would fail. What happened? We failed. That's right. He sinned. We failed. And when he fell, everything fell in creation with him. And here we are. Number 16, Jesus is called the last Adam. There is no last Eve. I don't care what some Catholic theologians have said that Mary is the last Eve. She ain't. Okay, scripture does not say that. Okay, Jesus, the last Adam, and the perfect man came to undo what the first Adam did, what he failed in. Okay, in the history of redemption, it begins with the first man, Adam, who sinned. It's going to end with the last man, Christ, who obeyed perfectly, who did all those things that pleased his father. And as Daniel 7 says, he will have dominion forever and ever. I can't wait for the final male headship, okay, when everything will be perfect as God had originally intended. Now, I could go on and on. I said, it took me about five minutes to put those together. The, the examples go throughout the scriptures it, all over the place. God gave man headship over his dominion, especially his home. Nothing has changed since creation. His original will stands. Now, because of sin in the world and in us, words like dominion have a negative feel to it. But dominion, mind you, was established before sin and corruption, before it came into the world. So the question that God's people must ask is this. What is the nature of dominion as God intended What's the nature of it? Now, we often say context is king, but it's often overlooked, okay? So it's necessary to state the obvious. Because there was no sin in the world when man was commissioned to have dominion, his dominion was exercised without sin. It was good dominion. I mean, who is going to say that when Christ comes and exercises complete dominion, as Oswald Sanders says, the world is yet to see the greatest dictator. Will his dominion be marked with tyranny? Absolutely not. It will be pure righteousness. Dominion by us should be exercised without sin. Let's look at a hint of this, the nature of dominion in Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Remember, the garden was the place of man's dominion, the location. But how did God want the man to exercise dominion over it? Tending and keeping In the context of gardening, to tend means to cultivate, to nurture, to take care of. Adam was there to beautify the garden and make it orderly, pleasant, fruitful. He was there to complement the purpose for which God created all of these things for him. And then the word to keep or keeping means to watch over carefully, to preserve, to guard, to care for. After sin entered the world, the word then became to mean to protect. So Adam was given his dominion to cultivate and to carefully watch over. That's the nature of his dominion. It was his to make a wonderful home with. And of course, Eve was then added later to the scene because without her, who knows what the garden would have looked like, okay? It probably would have looked like a gun store or something. (laughs) It's not good that man be alone, amen? (laughs) So listen carefully. If Adam was to treat the ground... And the garden with such care, how much more his wife was also created in the image of God. Now understand, because there was no sin in the world at this time, God didn't need to explain 
the moral virtues necessary to make a marriage. It wasn't necessary. There's no sin in the world. He's created in the image of God. There's no corruption of sin. But I think that the principles that are laid out here in regard to his treatment of the garden give us a hint of what dominion was to look like. But as soon as sin entered the world and it entered the man, it became necessary to prescribe moral guidelines for a man's dominion. Because of sin, men are inherently selfish. So instructions were and they are necessary. And so let me list the virtues, the biblical virtues of a husband's dominion. Ladies, let me know if you object to any of these. Rejoicing, loving, giving, sanctifying, cleansing, nourishing, cherishing, understanding, highly esteeming. Now, before, ladies, you think that I listed those to keep myself out of trouble, uh, let me give you the passages directly in the context of marriage. This, This is every major passage in the Bible regarding marriage outside of Genesis. I think it's important to show the people of God this because the church has drifted away from the scriptures regarding marriage and have adopted the world's methods and the world's criticism of biblical roles, which is a criticism of God and his character and his wisdom. The church has been a part of this undermining of God's design. They've laughed at it. They've balked at it. They've even mocked his word when it comes to his will. And what we're doing in the church today is we're reaping the whirlwind. You see, husbands, you've been designed and ordained by God to advance his vision for your family as you exercise godly dominion by way of these virtues. So my counsel to you in our culture is to stand up and be a man, just as the scriptures describe you. You know, gather other men around you with the same values, the same beliefs who will encourage you who inspire you to glorify God in your home. Don't ever be intimidated by the culture or social pressure. Do what honors God. Apologize for nothing that is done in accord with his word. Apologize for nothing. Because if you do, you're complicit in the criticism of God and his wisdom. You know, single ladies, if you want to choose a man wisely, take a good look at these virtues. And when you're looking at a guy appropriately, look for these virtues in his life. If you don't see him, don't pursue him, okay? Observe the way he speaks to his mother and his sisters, how he talks about them. Look to see if he's a person of sacrifice for others without seeking gain or attention. If he doesn't display these virtues that will complement godly dominion, look elsewhere, otherwise you are inviting pain into your life. You know, parents, raise your boys to aspire to these virtues and your girls to look for them. You know, married ladies, the reason men do not do this perfectly is because they're sinners by nature, and they're married to another sinner. And two sinners don't make a saint. Have you discovered that? They make chaos. But with the enablement of God's Spirit, through the instruction of God's Word, a marriage can be beautiful. Two can be heirs together of the grace of life, as God intended. Now, you see, nothing could be more obvious from the pages of Scripture that God has given man dominion of his home. He's the head. He's the authority in his home of his wife. But God has prescribed a particular nature, a set of virtues by which man must rule his home. Biblical dominion for the people of God, for Christian husbands. It doesn't even imply tyranny because tyranny cannot do that. Amen? It can't. It can't do that. You cannot be a tyrant and fulfill the scriptures. Okay, so the home is the man's dominion and the woman is the helper. We might say there's headship and there's helper in the order of 
biblical marriage. So we've talked about dominion and headship a little. What does that mean for the helper? The helper. Now, before sin entered the world and into the woman, it wasn't necessary to prescribe virtues for her. She was inherently content with her position and her role in marriage. There was no competition for the top, no dissatisfaction with her role or no disdain for her head. But when sin entered, that all ended. Sin produced the battle of the sexes. Look again at Genesis 3 with me. And as we do, again, keep context in mind. The context of Genesis 3 is what? The curse. The curse. The fall and the curse. Adam and Eve had just sinned, and God was declaring the curse upon them in the creation. Here's the passage of interest. To the woman, he said, I'll greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, for our time together, we're not interested in how the woman, through her sin, brought on pain from, you know, pain and sorrow from conception to delivery, okay? It's true, isn't it? It's the last part of verse 16 that affects the husband-wife relationship. Because of sin, now in the woman, it's also in the man, she will no longer be inherently content with her husband's headship, his, his leadership. The text says that her desire will be for her husband. Now, some people who have no concept of context have said that this desire refers to a woman's romantic desire for her husband. Oh, how husbands would love that to be. It's like, enough already, woman. It's all, the, it's all I can take. <laughs> but if I understand this position correctly, because of sin in the woman, she's now motivated to be romantic with her husband. Sin did that to her? That's how she was cursed? Uh, no. No. Desire, in this context, it doesn't mean romance. Let me provide you, actually, with... The exact Hebrew phrase in another context that happens to be in Genesis 4, where Cain was angry with his brother Abel because God accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Sin lies at the door. The word lies is the same word used to describe, you know, a crouching lion that is preparing to pounce on its prey. In the sentence, sin lies at the door like the crouching lion, and its desire is for you that you should rule over it. Okay, sin's desire is to overpower you, rule over you, but Cain, you should rule over it. Back to Genesis 3.16. Okay, the woman's desire for her husband because of sin is a contrary desire. She's no longer happy with her husband's role as head. Now, in the New King James, the NASB, the NIV, the conjunction is translated as and, but it fails to communicate the intended contrast in the text. It should be translated as but, just as it was in Genesis 4-7 in the context of Cain ruling over sin. It should be rendered something like this. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. The idea is, but he shall continue to rule over you. Now, the ESV and the NLT both provide the, the contrasting term, which represents the author's intent. The NLT says, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. The ESV says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So the woman's desire, because of inerrant sin, 
will be to rule her husband or to balk at his authority. But, but, you see, the point is this. Just because sin has come into the world and into us, it does not change God's original design and his will for the structure of authority in the marriage. His original will is for all time. Sin has made it more difficult for us to fulfill his will, but it has not changed his will, not one iota. So in spite of the woman's sinful desire to rule her husband or to disregard his authority, he is to maintain that same place that God put him in. It's how he's organized marriage. They are not co-heads or two heads in the same domain because anything with two heads is a freak, okay? It's just this is the way nature goes. You see, the sinfulness of the wife or the husband's sinful weakness to lead is never grounds for revoking or altering God's will. Never. Anything contrary to God's design is sinful. It's absolutely rebellious. So now the question is, what is the nature of the woman's role as helper? Well, I think it goes without saying she should be helpful. Okay? Submissive, respectful, obedient, loving, and modest. Okay? Wives, you've been designed by God and ordained by him to advance his vision for the family under the headship of your husband. And husbands, the reason your wife doesn't do this perfectly is because she is a sinner by nature, just like you, okay? And that sin in her has pitted her against your headship, which is, your headship is often less than stellar. But don't buckle to this, but lead with grace and integrity, gentleness and love. Single guys, before you pursue a girl, you should observe these virtues in her. Does she obey her parents? Is she respectful to them? Does she talk honorably about them? Is she modest? Does she have a servant's heart? If not, you should avoid her and look elsewhere. Otherwise, you are inviting a whole lot of pain into your life. Parents, you should be teaching your daughters to aspire to these virtues and to look for them, the virtues of a man and a future mate. Now, in spite of our sinfulness, mind you, which doesn't just cause us to rebel against God's design and roles for marriage. It's also is what is in us to resist this. It's what's in us to be critical of it. It's what's, it's what's in us to undermine what God's word has said. It's what's in us to appeal to the culture, to agree with the culture. That is sin in us. We must resist that. Okay? Now, in spite of our sinfulness, marriage should be amazing because of God's provision for it. Okay? Complementing virtues create mutual heirs of the grace of life. Complementing virtues in, in the marriage, headship and helper, make the ultimate synergism for the glory of God. When husband and wife obey the word of God according to their roles, their marriage comes together to maximize God's glory like nothing else. Now, our culture says that if you do that, it'll be tyranny. The husband will be a dictator. The wife will be a slave. Really, I look out in this audience at a number of marriages that function exactly according to this, of course, they falter along the way, but these are the marriages that are the most respectable among us. They're the ones that our young people look up to and respect them. It's amazing. It is amazing to me how when the virtues of the head and the virtues of the helper come together, how happy the marriage is and how fulfilled the individuals are in spite of what unravels in their circumstances. No matter what life throws at them, they're not lonely. There's joy, there's peace, there's harmony, there's cohesion, there's strength. Amen? You know what this does is it proves the wisdom of God's design. It proves it. It contributes to the health of the church and society. Good, godly marriages are the best medicine for a healthy world, beginning with our children. 
But when either the head or the helper refuse to live according to the virtues prescribed to them by their creator, they make life troublesome for their spouse. And when both refuse to live by those virtues, they make life a living hell for each other. And then it eventually ripples into society, but not before it devastates the children. You know, as we observe our culture doing marriage the way they want to and rebellion to their creator, it's nothing but disastrous. It's painful to observe. It's miserable. Divorce is rampant. Their children are a mess, and our society is paying the price. We have generations of fatherless children, broken homes, destroyed lives. It's devastating. We're seeing all of the results of that play out in the media, in our world. But you know, there's something far worse than the way our culture does marriage and family. It's far worse when those who profess Christ do marriage and family the way our culture does. We have the scriptures. It's for God's people to do the things of God. Jesus is the one that said, why do you call me Lord if you do not do the things I say, things that I command? We're God's covenant people. We've taken vows in this covenant of marriage. It's his covenant. And our vows, the covenant is based upon the commandments of scripture in regard to marriage. Yeah. Christian husbands have been called to a higher standard, to greater virtues, and we have God's word to instruct us, and we have his spirit to empower us. Amen? Christian wives have been called to a higher standard, to greater virtues. You have God's word to instruct you and the spirit to empower you. You know, there is, there is only one way to do marriage that will glorify God. There's, there's only one way to do marriage that will ultimately be fulfilling, and that's his way, period. So study the scriptures in regard to your role in marriage. Ask God for grace to obey his word, and then by his spirit, walk it out day by day. And when you fail, which will probably be this afternoon, confess your sins to your spouse and probably to a godly friend. Repent and do better next time. Whatever you do, trust the wisdom of God's design. Refuse to disobey his word and never use your spouse as an excuse to disobey the Lord. Honor God by living by his instruction. You know, his word never says, you know, if or when your spouse does <laughs> obey. If we were only to obey when our spouse did, we may never obey the Lord. And then your life would just be marked by rebellion. But when you fulfill your role in marriage, you are obeying Christ and bringing him glory. If your spouse is failing in their role, pray for them, encourage them, and do your best by the grace of God to be a good example to them. Wives, you might say, my husband isn't a good leader. He's irresponsible. He's disorganized or worse. Okay. And you've been created to be his helper. So help him be responsible. Help him get organized. Do your best to help him succeed. Don't criticize him. Help him where he struggles. Whatever you do, be a compliment to your marriage. Husbands, you might say, my wife doesn't submit to my authority. She doesn't respect me. Well, first, you exercise the virtues of headship. Does your life provide her a compelling reason to submit and respect you? Let's say you are a shining example of biblical headship. Don't criticize her for being a terrible example of a biblical helper. Encourage her, pray for her. Be the best head that you can and motivate her to rise to the occasion. We cannot fulfill the virtues of headship and helper by being critical of our spouse. Okay? You can by mutual love and respect, praying for them. I got to get done. I'm encroaching here. So in conclusion, God has organized the marriage relationship with the man as the head of his domain and the woman as his helper. Because together, our marriages are to advance 
God's vision for our relationship and for the family and ultimately for the kingdom of God. Amen? Okay, so we've laid down some fundamentals. I have some more next Sunday. That'll be fun. But I can't wait to hear how some of these couples that we've um, brought into this to explain how they've worked all of these details out in their life, how the, the husbands have exercised dominion in the context of sin and struggle in a, a broken world, and how the wives have exercised the virtues of a godly helper. It'll be good stuff. And the beauty of it, we'll see multiple different couples, multiple different personalities from multiple different backgrounds fulfill the will of God. Amen. All to prove that God can take, you know, put together the most unlikely people and do beautiful things. Amen. All right. Real quick, just before I let you out of here, uh, during the discipleship hour in here, uh, we're going to have a discussion on the Operation Christmas Child and how some of it's going to be incorporated into our, our discipleship hour for the kids. So it's, this in here is for the parents to kind of learn about that. Why don't you stand up and we'll pray. As always, um, if you struggle with anything I've taught, please be mature enough to come talk to me. Uh, if you send me a nasty gram, uh, if it's not signed, I won't read it, okay? Because the scriptures demand that you come to me, and I know who you are. But um, if you don't understand, if, uh, if you have questions, um, let's, let's talk, okay? Yeah. Father, um, our marriages are, have been established for your, your glory, and, and you have established our marriages so that we could be heirs together of the grace of life. We want all of those things, but Lord, our sin nature is pulling us away. So Lord, help us to humble ourselves. Help us to look at your word, to trust your design as it's stated, and help us to, by your grace, Lord, by your spirit, to walk according to it. Lord, that our, the marriages in Christ's community would be a testimony to the world. Be blessing to our children, or that it be blessing to our society that is tragically falling to pieces around. Lord, help our marriages be a light. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. It is, it's a light. It's a lamp, and we need it. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.